guardian angels and patron saints. Well, allow me to wish you, wish you a blessed Quasimodo Sunday. If any of you saw on the back of your bulletins there, the entrance antiphon has the little uh, first two words of the Latin that's being translated that we sang, and the words are Quasimodo, which uh, should ring a bell for you. If any of you have seen or read The Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know is the name of that, that little figure who uh, lives in the great cathedral of Notre Dame and is deafened by ringing of the bells and who plays a significant part in the, uh, in the events around that story. Um, I love Quasimodo. He's one of my favorite characters in all of literature. Uh, I kind of identify with him, a weird-looking guy who lives in the church. <laughs> uh, but I think also serves as a, a beautiful introduction to what we celebrate today. You see, Quasimodo got that name because he was um, abandoned as an infant, a disfigured child, cast off, left at the steps of the cathedral, and was adopted by one of the archdeacons there who raised him. That's why he got that name, is because it happened on the first Sunday after Easter, Quasimodo Sunday. And of course, that serves as a very appropriate image for what it is that we celebrate today, the divine mercy. The Lord who adopts us, though we are disfigured, though there is nothing outwardly desirable in us, he chooses us, brings us to life, and sets us on our feet, gives us a place within his house. This awakens gratitude in us, which is why our Holy Father made this feast day a solemnity and one that we are to celebrate each year. As I mentioned at the beginning of Mass, this is something that our Lord himself requested through his dialogue and appearances to St. Faustina. And he said, if you read from her diary, he said to her, My daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. Which in and of itself is silly, right? Because what's the least effective way to get your message out? Tell it to a cloistered Polish nun in the 1930s. <laughs> Yet here we are, talking about it, celebrating it. I desire that the Feast of Mercy be a refuge and a shelter for all souls, and especially for poor sinners. On that day, the very depths of my tender mercy are open. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the fount of my mercy. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. On that day are opened all the divine floodgates through which graces flow. Let no soul fear to draw near to me, even though its sins be as scarlet. My mercy is so great that no mind, whether human or angelic, will be able to fathom it throughout all eternity. Everything that exists has come from the depths of my most tender mercy. Every soul in its relation to me will contemplate my love and the depths of tenderness. It is my desire that this day be solemnly celebrated on the first Sunday after Easter, Mankind will not have peace until it turns to the fount of my mercy. These words, these commands of our Lord relayed to us by Faustina 
remind us of this perennial truth, which is not a new thing. Certainly the depths of God's mercy are very much at the center of what we are as Catholic Christians. Nothing new is being instituted here, but in fact an intensification and maybe a refreshment of what we already know to be the case, but need to be reminded, need to be invited to access anew. Because in these sacraments, especially in the sacrament of reconciliation, the misery of our souls meets the mercy of God. Come with faith to the feet of my representative, says the Lord. I myself am waiting there for you. I am only hidden by the priest. But I myself act in your soul. If a soul were like a decaying corpse, so that from a human standpoint there would be no hope of restoration, and everything would already be lost, it is not so with God. The miracle of divine mercy restores that soul in full. How miserable are those who do not take advantage of the miracle of God's mercy. So he invites us, commands us to repent, to seek his mercy, to place ourselves at his mercy today. But so too he demands that we trust. We have our image of the divine mercy enthroned over the doors of the church as you leave to look up to that and to read those words and to pray them. Jesus, I trust in you as you look upon that image, which he specifically asked to be painted based on what Faustina saw in her conversations with him, and that that image would be venerated. You can venerate that image as you leave every time you're here, whether you come in to pray on your own, whether you're here for Mass, but to look up, to meet the Lord's gaze, and to say to him, Jesus, I trust in you. Because mercy invites a deeper trust. I was reminded of this this weekend. I took a few young men down to the Clear Creek Monastery in Oklahoma, a Benedictine monastery, you could say, of the primitive observance, a very radical place, a very austere place. We joined the monks for prayer throughout the day, joined them for mass, which they prayed entirely in Latin. They chant the psalms, all 150 psalms every single week in Latin, singing them aloud in a cold, bitterly cold stone church, which as we sat there uh, in the early hours of the morning, praying for the sun to come out, wasn't a very comfortable place. But I wanted those young men to experience that, and I wanted to experience it myself because as depressing and and unenticing as that description may be, when you show up and participate in that life, even for just a little while, you discover it's very easy to pray. Prayer becomes sweet, effortless, no distractions. We were were hypothesizing that even the lack of a Wi-Fi or cell signal passing through our brains probably helped. There's nothing out there. Silence. Peace centered on Christ and the worship of Christ. But I was reminded of a conversation that I had with one of those monks about 15 years before. I knew some of them as, uh, when they were college students. We went to college together. And I was meeting with one of them, who's now a priest. We were walking through the grounds of the monastery before the big abbey church had been built. They were living in a, a, a kind of lodge and some garden sheds, I think, that they bought at the hardware store. He'd gotten permission from the abbot to come out and meet with me, and we walked around. I was visiting as a friend. And, uh, 
was in a particularly intense process of formation, so really every hour of your day is under obedience. So he got permission to come meet with me and speak. In the course of our short conversation, maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes, he said something I'll never forget, and I was reminded of it just this past weekend. The degree of your enlightenment is directly proportional to the degree of your trust. The degree of your enlightenment is directly proportional to the degree of your trust. The more you trust, the wiser and more far-seeing you are. That challenged me, because of course here's a man who lives that. Not only had he literally given away everything that he owned, literally, but then dedicated himself to these vows of poverty and chastity and obedience for the rest of his life to the service of God and living in community in this particular place and sharing in Christian love with the brothers that live there with him. That challenged me. Here's someone who's living it. Here's someone who's doing it, who's putting it into practice. It's not an abstract idea. What does that look like for us? What does that mean to trust? You might be searching your, your mind now, thinking to yourself, well, I mean, I, I guess I, I'm not particularly untrusting. I believe God is good. I believe he helps us out. I've received blessings from him for which I'm thankful. I think I trust God. I came across a, a homily recently from the great Italian firebrand Savonarola. He says this, which I think puts trust in its truly Christian sense. We are to love invisible things so much as to despise what is visible and be ready to suffer rather than to offend God in anything. He goes on, Christ does not promise us in this world riches or honor or dignity, but rather poverty, persecution, exile, prison, and death. He reserves for us hereafter happiness unspeakable, a share in the glory of the angels, the resurrection of the body, a joy which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man to conceive. And although the things which our Lord sets before us are most difficult to our human nature, innumerable Christians of all times and conditions of life, have accepted this teaching and adhered to it so closely that they have preferred to die rather than to deny it. That's what it looks like to trust, to be ready for that. To prefer to suffer or even to die than to offend God in anything. It's important to remember, of course, that in this call, we are not left to ourselves. It's not just up to us. Grace gives us the power to live in this trust. Grace lifts us above our human nature, which finds such a call so difficult, perhaps even impossible. That sanctifying grace which the sacraments and which God himself infuses into our souls changes us into beings capable of living in this way. It's the gift of God's own life imparted to us 
infused into our souls, which heal them of their sins and sanctify them. Sanctifying grace is what makes us pleasing to God. This is what it means when we say to be in a state of grace. That I've repented of my sins, I've confessed them. I've carried out my duties and lived in the abundance of the privileges that identity as a baptized Christian confers on me. The great classic image for this, which goes back maybe thousands of years, is a piece of iron heated by the blacksmith. You have that iron which is put into the, to the, to the, uh, to the coals and heated to an intensity until it becomes soft and red hot so as to be easily worked. This is the image that uh, many of the teachers of the Christian faith have used to express what it means to be in a state of grace. You see, because the iron is still iron, but it's been heated by the fire so that it takes on the fire, fire's own properties. God is the fire. Your soul is the iron. He lives within you, and you become like him. You glow with his light and with his life. And just as iron, if it's misshapen or needs to be reformed, is more easily shaped when it's been heated in that way, and the blacksmith can, can turn it to properly form it, so too we become soft in God's hands. We become open and receptive to the work he wants to accomplish in us and through us. And just as a, a piece of red-hot iron, if you touch it to, to something else, it also imparts that same heat, could even ignite it. So too you, by the infused dwelling grace of God, are able to share that, to radiate it into the situations in which you find yourselves, your homes, your families, your workplaces, your friendships. You too become conduits of the divine mercy. And this is the third thing that Christ asks of us on this Feast of Mercy, to become sources of mercy in the world, to carry out those works of mercy of the body and of the spirit that are so crucial to our witness as Christians. There must be acts of mercy, Jesus told Faustina. Yes, I want my mercy to be worshipped through this celebration of the feast, through the veneration of this image that I painted, But these are to be reminders of my mercy because even the strongest faith is of no help without works. Without a response in love and in gratitude to the mercy that we have received. Today, I invite you to join us after Mass as we expose the Blessed Sacrament. To join us in praying the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, which is a prayer meant to venerate and call down the mercy of God. We have some images of the divine mercy in the, cha- in the, the vestibule on your way out if you want to take one of these with you and put it in, a, in your dorm room, in your apartment, in your home as a place where you can be reminded and look upon the face of Jesus expressed in his mercy. And then after Mass, we're going to pray using these little holy cards, the chaplet of divine mercy, which I'll have the ushers distribute for those of you that would like to remain. We'll expose the blessed sacrament at the end of Mass. We'll take 10 minutes or so to pray the chaplet. And I hope that even if you're not able to join us, you'll take one of these with you and spend some time today and in the weeks and months to come resting in this gift of God's great mercy. Our Lord calls to us today, trust in me. Trust in me. Do not be unbelieving, but believe.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.